From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, if Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Nice to have you along again for another episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. As always, taking you behind the curtain and chatting to some of the amazing artists you can enjoy at the venue. Coming up today, I speak to Eddie London and Gary Daly, founding members of China Crisis, ahead of their gig at the stables to mark the 40th anniversary of their wonderful album, Working With Fire and Steel. I didn't realise that at the time, I just thought we were doing what we were doing, but if you listen to it now, it's like, my God, that couldn't be more 1983 if it tried, you know. It's still very fresh, the songs are lovely, uh, they're all a bit whimsical, poetical, they're all a bit teenagers in love, really. That's, that, that's a lot of what it is, really. And in this episode, we'll shine a light on stage two at the stables, the smallest sibling of the Jim Marshall Auditorium, where unsigned and upcoming artists get a chance to cut their teeth. I'll speak to the incredibly talented Isabella Coolstock, returning to the stables after supporting Nell Bryden on the main stage earlier this year. So the guy walked in and um, my friend said to me, yeah, that's, um, that's the Who's manager. And I said, sorry, sorry, what? And he said, that's the Who's manager. And I, I literally was like, okay, I'm about to go on stage in this tiny room with a headline set and uh, I've got to impress the Who's manager. So that's, you know, it's going to be fine. We'll rock it, be fine. You know, <laughs> nothing, nothing can go wrong. Isabella is wonderful and she'll sing for us live too. And we'll finish with a treat for movie fans. Neil Brand is an improv pianist and pretty much the preeminent expert on silent movies. He combines the two in his evening with Laurel and Hardy. 100-year-old comedy does not age. You watch Stan and Ollie on screen performing the same things they've performed on screen all that time. And what works is actually the comedy is timeless. It's very basic. It's a lot of slapstick. But also, it's two really fundamentally lovely characters. That show is not to be missed, and nor is this latest episode of Turn Up the Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. Great local venue, small, perfectly formed, great atmosphere. It's something really different, and it's really local. It's just such a cosy, intimate environment. Great eclectic mix of music and a really lovely community. Yep, three great artists coming up for you as we get the chance to hear from them without any time constraints. And of course, that's the beauty of a podcast. They talk about their music, their careers, coming to the stables. If you happen to enjoy these episodes as much as I enjoy putting them together for you, please do rate the series on your podcast app. Put a review if you've got the time. Tell your friends about it. It really helps get the word out and is a massive way of supporting the work of the stables. Right, let's head to Liverpool to catch up with Eddie London and Gary Daly, founding members of China Crisis. They're coming to the stables on the 28th of October, celebrating the 40th anniversary of working with Fire and Steel by playing it in its entirety. Gary, Eddie, great to have you on Turn Up the Volume. Hello, Hello. Myth. Nice to have you both along. Listen, I do lots of these interviews and quite logically they involve me asking the questions and usually, hopefully, guests answering them too. But I was feeling a bit mischievous today and I thought I'd do this one a little bit differently, perhaps with someone else asking the questions. So bear with me on this. What with you coming to the stables to mark the 40th anniversary of working with Fire and Steel? I thought we could revisit an interview you both did back in 1983 for Smash Hits, February to be precise. Do you remember this interview? Yeah, I think it was done by Neil Tennant, wasn't it? Of Pet Shop Boys. Exactly. So the question's coming from this 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 journalist called Neil Tennant, who, as you hint there, I think he went on to 
to do all right. Um, not, not it's, it's a really good interview. I must credit uh, Steve Pafford on his website, stevepafford.com, because he unearthed uh, this gem. And the article started like this, and it's going to be quite interesting to revisit some of the questions now, looking back 40 years. It says, that first we went on the ferry across the Mersey, then we walked through Liverpool for some tea. Gary Daly and Airy London of China Crisis had caught the train up from Kirby, a suburb six miles out of the centre of Liverpool, where they both lived with their families. With Gary's little case and Eddie's neat tweed jacket, they didn't really look like pop stars, but this week they were celebrating their first week in the top 30. To make the point, two young girls stopped them in the street to ask them for their autographs. Eddie ran off embarrassed. Gary signed. It was time to sit them down separately and ask them a few questions. Did you both remember this time when suddenly you start to be recognised in your own home city? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, at the time, you know, it was... It was uh, we were on everything at the time, Oxford Road Show. Ed, yeah. it was that yeah. one, wasn't it? If you were on top of the pops, immediately the pops, everybody yeah. in the street knew knew who you were or they knew they'd seen you. That's how big that programme was. I mean, literally, the very next day, everybody would be recognising you. Sure enough, that's what happened when um, when, when Neil Tennant turns up. Joe, you know, it's interesting from a musical standpoint, because um, he, he goes on to ask whether you, you work in the shadow of the Beatles. And of course, it's easy to forget that here we are 40 years on, that you guys were, you know, barely, what, 10, 12, 15 years out of out of the, the, the Beatles' peak. And there's a great quote I saw in another interview where I think it was you, Gary, who said um, that you used the Beatles' formula, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, yeah, middle, yeah. Late, verse, chorus, chorus, out. And then adding, you say, the enoisms and, and progisms. The influence... Is very much there, isn't it? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think uh, if you imagine Eddie and myself would have thought that was our mum and dad's music, really the Beatles. So they would have had all their records, and we would have grew up with them. But at no point, I think, would Eddie and myself paid them any attention, really, because we were kids when we were teenagers in the seventies, and that was really all Bowie and glam rock and Mark Boland, Roxy music, and then. Later on, it was New Wave, wasn't it? Which would have sounded a little bit prog rock to us, but a bit more interesting. And we would have been at the right age, you know, 17, 18, to connect with those bands. Who else was influencing you at the time from uh, an electronic standpoint? Yeah, obviously, like Kraftwerk, and we listened to OMG, Human League. Yeah. By the time we were signed, we were quite eclectic. We had listened to uh, some European stuff as well, like Daft and, you know, really quite obscure bands. Everyone from the prog ones, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, you know? yeah. Tangerine Dream would be. If you imagine, uh, Nick, there wasn't that much uh, access to music, you know, uh, especially Ed himself growing up in Kirby. So there would be like a Trans Europe Express album, but that would be passed around like a whole group of kids would get to borrow it from somebody and get to hear it. And then it was the same with Tangerine Dream. Somebody would have Rubicon and, it would be passed around a whole group of kids and you'd get to hear it. It wasn't like, uh, one, we didn't have a record shop in Kirby. That didn't come until 79, 80. There might have been a little one, you know, uh, that was also sold televisions and yeah. fridges and freezers and stuff. But um, we certainly didn't hop on the bus, you know, into town and nobody really tuned into the radio, you know, like John Peel and that. That would have all been a lot later. We would have discovered that. That it would have was. been sort of... 1980, 81, we would have. So as teenagers, it was very much like who had who had who had a Kraftwerk album and who had this and and uh, who had the Human League face records and I can remember Ultravox face records. You know, you 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 got them and you had them for 
two or three days and then you had to pass it on really (laughs) were you listening to sparks because for me king in the catholic style has got quite a a sparks ring to it and even the video has got elements of of ron in it what what with that mustache (laughs) i definitely would have had the singles i remember this town ain't big enough that that would have been the records i played but no we weren't listening to sparks really you know only like through radio and that i mean I remember, like, loving, obviously, This Town Ain't Big Enough and the number one song in all of heaven and that. Uh, but we wouldn't have tried to fashion in any way any of our songs on Spark. No, no. Although they are a great band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like you guys, are still playing live and still playing brilliantly. Listen, I love this bit. You were asked um, what the most irritating thing about each other is. Ed says Gary won't give in in arguments. Gary says you always disagree. Ed is sweet and I'm sour. 40 years on, how, how's that going? Yeah, that's still the same. <laughs> <laughs> Very much Ed so. is definitely half full and I definitely half empty and always have been really. And, you know, that's... It's how it works, really. Ed's very amiable. He's very social. I'm very not. I'm very, you know, not really. So it really works for us, really. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's it's pop, properly yin and yang. I agree with it all. <laughs> That's what makes it work. Let's talk about Kirby. You mentioned it there. You were both still living at home. Uh, yeah. In that interview, Ed describes his house as a four-bedroom house and really run down. Gary says... It's one of the first parts of Kirby to be built, so it's not as run down because the population is older. And I wonder how much did the environment in which you were living, still at home with your families, influence the music you were making? And maybe that leads on to a second question. How did you feel about starting to make money from your music? And how did those around you feel? Uh, well, we first of all, we never made much money from it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we were on bare minimal wage. I mean, it affected, obviously, because the social situation that was there. And uh, you got to remember, we were brought up in, in around the time of Thatcher's government and everything. So kind of, there was mass unemployment. Uh, it was it was very much run down and everything. So uh, there was a couple of paths you could go on, really. You could either take the path where you wanted to succeed through something, you know, whether it be music, sports, you know, even politics and that. Um, or there was the other path where, you probably went into crime or, you know, you were unemployed and that. So, yeah. so um, fortunately for us, we, we went down the path where we were quite ambitious and, and, you know, and we wanted to do something for ourselves. Yeah. And we had, we, we, we were still living at home 83, you know, we were still only 20, 21. And we were both from big families. And like Ed said, we weren't in an extraordinary amount of money. So we still had the same friends. We had the same girlfriends. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we didn't go anywhere other, well, I mean, we did tour to extraordinary places. Do you know what I mean? We would be at the Roosevelt Hotel in LA watching Iggy Pop, diving and out the pool, uh, and then coming home to Kirby. But we were still with our same friends. It's like we weren't really singing about experiences outside of Kirby and our friends and uh, that that whole situation really. It wasn't like we were you know, singing about LA and how amazing. We did get round to doing that, but not initially really. We were still very impressionable and very young and sort of taking things in and trying to work things out really, you know. It's not like we had a university education or any of this, you know. Both Ed and myself were big truanters at school. So between 14 and 16, and we left at 16, but between 14 and 16, we spent very little time in school. So you can imagine all of a sudden, Two, three, four years later, we're traveling the world and having relative 
success and sort of making sense of that really. But yeah, there was no big paycheck. So you weren't rolling up in fast cars and loose women and drug habits and stuff like that. That was all to come. <laughs> yeah, 40 <laughs> years later. Was it easy Was it easy to make music though when, when you're surrounded by, you know, your large families, you're, you're still living at yeah. home? God, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very encouraging, really. Yeah. And again, like Gary said, it was great having that, uh, you know, the friends that we did have there, we, we kind of did have like a cooperative going where, you know, we'd share equipment and we'd have it for three days. They'd have it for three days. And on the seventh day, we seen all again, friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> considering, you know, considering we come from big families and it was when you left school, you were expected to get a job, really. Amina did that for maybe, I don't know, a year or so a year, after leaving yeah. school. And then we didn't, you know, and we, we got on with, we were adamant that we would teach ourselves to write, to make music, you know, and that's what we did. Yeah. So really imagine it's a tribute really to our mums and dads and brothers and sisters that we were allowed to stay at home and uh, teach ourselves to make music. And that was done, you know, with sort of like a little drum machine, a little synthesizer and a guitar. And uh, writing writing songs is, you know, it, there's a lot of repetition to it. I remember my mum who worked in a biscuit factory, so she'd leave the house at four. But she'd be submitted to sort of like me having the same drum beat going for about <laughs> four hours in a day, trying to work out, you know, what was a what was a good idea. Same over at Ed's mum and dad's house, you know, Ed's mum would come back at, I don't know, midday, between midday and two o'clock, and she'd be subject to the same, you know, we'd be up in Ed's bedroom <laughs> with just this this infernal drum beat going on yeah. day after day after day. And it'd be working with fire and steel. Or it'd be wishful thinking, or it would be tragedy and mystery. But it was like, it was tribute to them, really, that they didn't just go, no, 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 this can't be happening in our house. Day after day, week in, week out, just the same thing, the same thing. You know, kids' parents now, and Ed's worked in the Lipper, you know, McCartney School, and kids now, they get an awful lot of support, and they're very connected. And they're, they're being taught all manner of things about the business. It wasn't like that in, in no. Man and Ed's day. You didn't get any lifts with your equipment anywhere to a no. or anything like that. My mum and dad didn't come to see us till we'd been on top of the pops. And we were at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool. And then they come to see us and was like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Mm, seems to be working out, I suppose. You know? we're, we're indebted to their patience, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what yeah. Danny says is, is an important point, really, as well, because going back on what he's just said, suppose at that time the easiest option would have been for us just to form a band and have a drummer and have a bass player. Yeah. But, yeah. but but we didn't. We didn't. We come from like the the songwriting backgrounds, and we we persevered and and did it all ourselves, you know. And uh, that and that was a great asset, I think, because of the technology and everything at the time. You know, drum machines were coming out, and synthesizers were coming yeah. out uh, that we could use all that new technology and we, we didn't feel the need uh, to be like a, a bunny men or, or, or you know or a teardrops or whatever and just go and form a band we could do it all by ourselves Ed a lot, as well was that a lot of our friends were in like cover bands you know yeah. because they were desperate not to have to get jobs and, and they could get like three gigs a week and make some decent money where they wouldn't have to get a job. But it did mean they have to go out and cover all the, you know, the cars and yeah. uh, the, eagles. Oh, the eagles and everyone. Do you know what I mean? And me and Ed would have looked at that and gone, we can't do that. One, we couldn't do it. We weren't good enough to do it. 
But we were also a bit like, that's not really what we want to do, really, you know. Well, was there was there a bit of a battle for you? You talk about the instruments there and uh, a bit of a battle in how you were perceived. I mean, in that Smash It's interview, you talk about being more acoustic than synthesizer. Um, at the time, it felt like people were trying to push you into that electronic synthesizer uh, pigeonhole, uh, sort of lump you into it. Um, but your feet were very firmly, as you say there, in, in songwriting and classic pop and yeah. rock instrumentation. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we love the synthesis. We, we absolutely adore and still do to this day. You know, love playing with, with technology and synthesizers and that. So it was very much, but we, we, we weren't definitely weren't pushed in that direction because we, we did use it a lot. Uh, but what we always thought, I think, was uh, that the song was king rather than rather than being put in a pigeonhole and being a type of band, whether you're, you know, like the Velvet Undergrounds or whatever, and just use guitars and very garagey, or or whether you're a synthesized group like OMD or Kraftwerk or whatever. We we didn't really get pushed in that direction in that to that respect because we'd use we always thought the song was king. So whatever instrumentation the song needed, we would use. So we would use oboe, we would use horns, we would use rail strings, we would definitely use synthesizers, drum machines, drums and guitars and things, but. Um, but we were open to using every instrument, really. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that really came about. Where, where we were kind of categorised as. Yeah. I mean, it still happens to this day. To be perfectly honest, Nick, if you, if, you know, when did you did they, these compilation albums and that? There's many categories that you'll see us under. You'll see us under pop. You'll see us under rock. You'll see us under, uh, you know, synthesised bands or electronic bands. Uh, you'll see us under new romantic. You'll even. She's under jazz at times, you know, so uh, it, it still happens to this day. I think uh, I think the music industry likes to pitch in old people, really. It, it makes it makes the companies feel safe that, you know, who the market it to and who they can sell it to and that kind of thing. Yeah, but music lovers love bands that don't like being pigeonholed, and that's why we love China Crisis. Look, you, you're touring you're touring the 40th anniversary of this album. We've got to talk about the album itself, uh, because the recording of Working With Fire and Steel, uh, I think it was at the Manor Studio in Oxford, seemed a much more, I'm, I can't think of the word here, I was going to say balanced or stable affair than the recording of your first album. Um, for a start, you had a producer that you actually wanted. We did indeed, we did indeed. Working with Mike Harlett, and that was, uh, was a privilege, really. He was an he, absolute great guy and a great producer, you know, and responsible for such a big part of all that AT sound and, you know, the people who he produced. God, he, so it was great working with Mike. Yeah. And still underrated when you look at the key influences of the 80s. God, everyone, I mean, I mean, obviously you've got the obvious artists like, like OMD and like he did Flock of Seagulls and all that kind of stuff. Big Liverpool connection, really. Uh, but all the other stuff as well, you know, Martin and the Muffins, uh, such a great pop here. I mean, I mentioned there that at least you wanted to work with them. Just just tell me the story briefly of what happened with the first album. Oh, uh, God, uh, we just uh, failed to find one, really. We didn't realise uh, how important that was to the whole process. We thought, you know, uh, well, it's just a matter of recording the songs, really, isn't it? So... We experimented with all these people, Steve Levine and... Uh, Jeremy Lewis, Gilmore. Yeah, and, Jeremy um, Lewis. Pete Walsh. Pete Walsh, yeah. All these people who'd worked with great people, do you know what I mean? Pete had worked with Simple Minds and the Pale Fountains and Steve had worked with Imagination and Culture Club. Uh, they'd all worked with great people. Jerry had owned the studio in, in Kirby. It was him responsible for getting us signed. It was him who, who had African and White in the little room in his studio in a little production office and wanted to produce it. 
So Ed and myself were happy to go along with the record company trying to fit us with the right people. But it was usually a case of, I think if anyone come close, it was most probably Pete Walsh. But by that time, we'd already worked with Steve Levine and we did about three or four tracks. And by the time we got to the fourth track with Steve, we were a little bit like, we didn't like the direction it was going in. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time we'd worked with Peter, we did three or four songs with him. Three of them worked out, one didn't. And I think more or less we sort of, the record company were like, well, I think we're happy to let us do a, a, two or three of the tracks ourselves. And then the next thing, you know, they cobbled the album together and Ed and myself were quite happy with it. You know, we had that lovely thing of hearing our songs really produced and then and then having our songs not really quite so uh, produced. And that sort of give it the right kind of feel, really. It yeah. was like, you know, from big, yeah, to from big uh, to, to small, really. And that sort of said what, what it was we were trying to trying to do, really, was was variety, really. It was like, You know, we were very shocked, like, when our songs had the potential to sound like Christian yeah. or to sound like Seven Sports for All or to sound like, you know, uh, no more blue horizons. It really, it really did. Sort of, wow, God, look at this. Look at how we can sound. You know, I don't think the record company were, were as happy though. No, I, I think, don't I, think so. I think yeah. it could have went. It could have went if it wasn't for Christian. Yeah, and African and white, right? It could have went terribly wrong for us. Yeah, I, I believe that's to this day because they booked the studio for like three months with Steve Levine and. Uh, if the truth of it is, is that me and Gary basically walked out on them. Yeah, you know, um, it's something that we're not proud of. Well, we're proud of because because fortunately it worked for us. Yeah. Now, what because we were so young and so naive in the industry, what we didn't realise was that the studio was booked for three months. You know, and I, paid for. I, exactly. Yeah. How are the people yeah. going to maintain their jobs? The people that work there. You know, we didn't think about all that. We didn't. The producer was uh, hired for three months, you know. Yeah. So we just walked out on it, and it was we got calls in for a meeting, uh, and the record company were explaining this to us, you know, God, you know, how are they supposed to rent out the studio again, like overnight, and that, and we were like, you know, apologetic that we didn't realise, but but our, in our defence, we were saying that uh, basically when they signed us, they didn't sign us for that reason, they didn't sign us for. Uh, to go in and have everything programmed by Steve Levine, we play instruments, we do this, we do that. Uh, so they they uh, supported us and 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 said, okay, go away, do it your way, do it your way. Now, if we would have done it our way and it fails, we may never never have got to the second yeah, album. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, but it didn't fail. It, it we went away. Yeah, I think as well uh, that whole thing of being young and naive. Yeah, is. And the thing of, you know, being a bit chaotic. I think really that that's most probably the history of music making, isn't it? You know, Absolutely. that it is a bit chaotic and it is a bit chaos and it is problematic along the way. But guess what? We had Imagine at the end of it yeah. or we had, you know, Christian at the end of it or we, you know. No, I, I completely, just, completely yeah, agree with that. It wasn't like. I mean, Steve, basically, same with Pete. It was like they were great. They were absolutely great. But it wasn't like Ed and myself just weren't committed to sort of... We didn't understand, like Ed says. We didn't really understand that, you know, uh, really we were meant to be committing to, you know, a long time in the studio with these people. Whereas we were like, we'd done four days with them and it would be like, right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think as well, I think as well that, that put us all in 
because we walked out, because we because it sounded so different, I think that in many ways uh, helped secure the future. Really, because we could have easily it could have went the other way. Yeah, we could have easily went in into the the complete album with Steve Levine, and it would all would have been programmed. And again, we might not have got to our second album because it had, it was all so similar. You know, is the audience going to be there for the next album because we don't really sound like that? So with it being kind of like a, an array of different sort of different sounds, yeah. different productions, different feels, different instrumentations, I think that was like was growing within the yeah. industry and finding ourselves of what we wanted to be. Do you know what though? Ed, we're in one of those bands, you know, I'll never forget it because I remember finding it very upsetting at the time. We were one of those bands, you know, that really did sort of, even though we had hit records, every time we made a new album, we did sort of go back to square one, really, with the oh, public. Yeah. They didn't sort of like go, do you know what I mean? The advanced sales were never like through the roof. You know the way Simple Minds, they'd sort of, because they were such a touring band and they'd been going for so much longer than us, uh, they were they'd sort of build on that audience, and and the big pre-sales for their yeah. album would be like Horses you know back at square 40, one. 50, 60,000 <laughs> pre-sales. would be like back to square one, and we'd have to have another hit single. <laughs> <laughs> but that audience, that audience that you've refreshed and renewed, and it's also stayed loyal to you, is still there, and will very much yeah. be there at the stables. Oh as, yeah, as yeah, a, yeah. You play this album in full. You're going to play other tracks as well. Look, I revisited the album before doing this interview. I, I listened to it in its entirety for the first time in some years. It still sounds great. It must be great yeah. to play it. Oh, it's so lovely. Gosh, it's so fresh and lively, you know, and that. That is, like Ed said, that's due to Mike Howell, like that, you know, his treatment of it. It upset Kevin because a lot of it is electronic drums with real drums. And a lot of it is Kevin sort of triggering a lot of the sounds that Mike was coming up with, you know, for percussion, electronic percussion. It was uh, a computer he was using at the time. Uh, but that really did give it that sound of the 80s, yeah. you know. I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought, we were doing what we were doing, but if you listen to it now, it's like, my God, that couldn't be more 1983 if it tried, you know. Yeah. It's still very fresh. The songs are lovely. Uh, they're all a bit whimsical, poetical. They're all a bit teenagers in love, really. That's, that, that's a lot of what it is, really. Let, let's finish with this, and, and I'll just go back to the, uh, to the Smash It's interview, because uh, he says uh, at the end, uh, what is the point of China crisis? And Gary, you say a sense of understanding. And Ed, Ed you say, uh, there's no big point about it. The songs we write are obvious. You could call them like statements. The whole point of it is just to carry on and enjoy it. I'm not trying to preach to anyone or tell anyone what we do. They're really simple songs, just observations. Does that still stand true? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely for that album, most certainly. Yeah, because we were still young lads, and a lot of those songs are us being older teenagers. Yeah, it represented us at the time. Absolutely. Will you come to the stables on the 28th of October? Limited number of seats left, unsurprisingly. Uh, that kicks off at eight o'clock. Uh, more ticket details at stables.org if you uh, want to get in just before they all sell out. More information about China Crisis, probably the best place to do that is uh, on Facebook. Just do a search for China Crisis. Uh, Eddie, Gary, it's been uh, it's been really fascinating to talk to you both. I really appreciate your time. It's been really good, Nick. Very interesting. Thanks so much. Great, that. Coming up in October at the Stables in Milton Keynes. My name is Alison Young and these are my programmer picks for the month of October. 
My first pick is an unusual one, and it falls into that special place which connects the regular Stables concert programme with If Milton Keynes International Festival. This ensemble slapstick on a five-man theatre troupe from the Netherlands, who by their own admission blur the lines between clowning and classical music. Think Chaplin meets Tchaikovsky, Groucho Marx does Mozart, that kind of thing. I first saw them at the Edinburgh Festival in 2017 and I knew I had to have them in our programme. They are completely side-splittingly hilarious, inventive and slightly bonkers, but don't be deceived. They are also phenomenal classical musicians, mastering over 200 instruments between them, both conventional and highly unconventional. We finally presented them for the first time in autumn 2018 and I'm delighted that we are bringing them back this October. The Stables date is only one of three opportunities to see them in the UK this year, so don't miss it. It's a perfect show for all the family, and it falls into the first weekend of the October half-term break. My second pick is another international group of musicians, this time from Italy. The Dario Napoli trio play a hot jazz set inspired by the gypsy jazz of Django Reinhardt, but infused with bebop, modern jazz and funk. They will be playing a Sunday late morning set in the informal setting of the Mancini Forum, which is the main foyer area at the Stables. This is a monthly concert series which we established in 2016 and runs throughout most months of the year. It's proved really popular with music lovers who like a chilled start to their Sunday. And my final pick is for an ensemble much closer to home. The Alida Orchestra is Milton Keynes' only professional orchestra founded in 2017 and which aims to make classical music accessible and inclusive. They will be playing in the main auditorium at the end of October, an orchestral programme which includes music by Elgar, Holst, Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich. However, they are also bringing a smaller group of musicians to the stables during October half-term. Band in a Van will be performing two family concerts playing everything from Disney to classical numbers with loads of audience participation. This is also taking place in the Mancini Forum and these shows promise to be relaxed and fun. And even better, they are free to attend, but you do need to book a ticket. Don't miss it. For more information, head over to stables.org, where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the Stables, volunteering, or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. This is Turn Up the Volume from the Stables in Milton Keynes, looking ahead to some great upcoming gigs at the venue. Now, if you've only been to the venue a few times to see artists in the main auditorium, you may well be wondering what happens in the room to the right of the foyer. That's stage two at the Stables, a smaller, more intimate room showcasing up-and-coming artists. Shortly, we'll hear from Alison Young again. She'll give us some of the history behind stage two. But first, let's hear from an incredible artist who'll be playing there very soon. Isabella Coolstock recently played the Stables, supporting Nell Bryden. And now, in true Stables stage two fashion, she's coming back Back to headline in November. Expect big songs, intimate lyrics, and a voice which can whisper and roar in equal measure. Isabella joins me from her studio. Welcome to Turn Up the Volume. Hey Nick, thank you for having me. It's absolutely lovely. Now listen, before we even talk about you, that that Nell Bryden tour, there's quite a story behind that, isn't there? There is. I have to say it's quite amusing. <laughs> um, well, it all happened last year when she was over here for her tour. Um, my dad happened to be in London, in Campbell, I think it was where he was working on a working with a client and he was outside their house and he saw someone across the road and he thought, oh, I really recognise her. And he said, oh my God, I think it's Nell Bryden. So anyway, without any sort of like shame, he just <laughs> shouts, Nell, Nell, over here, Nell. Uh-huh. And literally she's like, uh, yeah, do, do, I, do I know you? Hello. And then uh, 
He's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a massive fan of your music. And I just wanted to say it was really great to meet you. Um, and they were chatting away. And basically, she, he was asking them what was going on and why they were there. And she said that their Uber hadn't turned up yet. And they literally were panicking because they had to get to their tour bus. I think they were staying at a friend's house and they had to get, they had to, get to the bus. Oh, it was so, so he, she was there with her musicians. Um, anyway, so my dad said, oh, I'll give you a lift. Anyway, they looked at the car. And they realised that it was a convertible. So it was really, it was tiny. It was my mum's car. It was the one day he went out without his van and thought, oh, it's a nice day. I'll put the roof down. Um, and yeah, so he's turned up in his tiny car. And they're like, we're not going to fit in there. We're not going to fit. And he said, yeah, of course you will. Of course you will. So anyway, they get in the back and uh, they, well, Nuggets in the front with my dad. And in the back, he's got the musician, the keyboardist is literally piled up with guitars and equipment and everything. And it's the funniest sight of all, honestly. And my dad was saying that Nelf thought it was just so funny that they were just going all the way through London, like for 45 minutes on this trip through London in a convertible piled up. They just thought it was the funniest thing. Um, and it became the story of the tour, which was quite funny. Um, but anyway, so they got chatting away. And my dad obviously said, oh, my daughter's in music and she's, you know, singer-songwriter, just open for Jules Holland and saying all these things. And she was like, oh, cool, I'll check her out. And I think Nell at the time, she was like, oh, here we go. You know, another person saying, oh, yeah. Another dad saying this. his daughter's brilliant. Yeah, literally, yeah. Um, and then she, you know, she checked me out. I think she, well, she must have quite liked what she heard because uh, she invited me to do 12 dates on her tour the next year. <laughs> it's 2063. Isabella Coolstock looks back on her career <laughs> and cites that moment when her dad yelled across the street to Nell Bryden and said, hi, Nell, you need to meet my daughter. <laughs> I know. And that was the crazy thing, because at the time I wasn't there. It was he, he actually rung me on the phone. I was in my studio, unbeknownst to what was happening. And um, yeah, you know, he rung me and he said, someone's here to talk to you. And I said, OK, a bit weird, but hi. And, um, and Nell goes, hi, it's Nell Bryden. Do you know who I am? And I'm like, oh, my God, of course I do. This is insane. What are you doing with my dad? <laughs> it's a bit weird. Um, and she was like, oh, no, it's crazy. Your dad's just picked us up and he's, just, he's taken us all the way to our tour bus. And he was so sweet and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to check out your music. And I was like, this is insane. And then, you know, literally then a year later, I get the offer. And I'm like, this is, this is so crazy. And she's like the best person to work with. She's amazing. Nella's an old friend and she is the best person. And if she said she was going to have you, she would absolutely stick to her word. You know that. Oh, uh, yeah. And I know that. Isn't the universe funny sometimes how it works? Totally. You could literally be in a room with like record execs and nothing will happen. And then suddenly you're on the street with your dad or something like that. And it's, it's mad. It really is. You know, it's funny, I was looking at, uh, at your recent live schedule on your website, and of course there's loads of great classic small venues, kind of venues that you'd expect an artist uh, like yourself to be playing at this stage of your career. Mm. And then, again, something rather different this summer. How did that come about? Well, yes, that was quite an unexpected turn. Um, so I did a gig, and it was, again, it was someone was talking to someone was talking to someone. I'm loving the suspense, by the way, that neither of us has said what it is yet, which is no, good. So, so let's, I know. Let's, let's keep it building. So there you were. We love it. We love it, yes. Um, anyway, so the it turns out a guy came down to one of my gigs. It was a headline show at the Green Note in Camden. Yeah. Have you been there? Have you been to the Green Note? Of course. It's amazing, isn't it? And, but you know how small it is, Tiny. right? It's, I mean, it's absolutely, oh, just teeny weeny. So I was literally, I didn't realise who this guy was until he walked in before the gig. And um, honestly, when I say when people go, no pressure, it was one of those moments you go, oh my God. Mm. Um, so I literally said, so the guy walked in and um, my friend said to me, yeah, that's, um, that's the Who's manager. And I said, sorry, sorry, what? And he said, that's the Who's manager. Who? Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Who, literally. 
It was, and I, I literally was like, okay, I'm about to go on stage in this tiny room with a headline set and uh, I've got to impress the Who's manager. So that's, yeah, it's going to be fine. We'll rock it, be fine. You know, <laughs> nothing, nothing can go wrong. Um, but anyway, so it turns out that he ended up sitting there right on the side, you know, when they've got literally on the left-hand side of you, you're playing and they're like almost right in your field of vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so obviously I completely played it and rocked it out and everything else. Um, but anyway, so he liked what he saw and he, you know, stayed for the entire, entire set. And then he offered me the show playing, supporting the Who at the O2 Arena. Uh, and some huge cricket grounds as well. Yes. You know, that, that's where you show when someone is a real artist, because a real artist is able to get outside of themselves, not be stuck in their head and thinking, OK, there's a lot uh, hanging on this because over there is the Who's manager. Mm. That's when you really know that you are a proper artist. Yeah, you have to put those things to the back of your mind, ultimately. I mean, it's amazing to think and it, you know, it can come across quite scary. But at the same time, you just, is this another gig? Is another person? Everyone's, you know. You've got to live, you've got to do your thing. That's a simple fact. You've got to do your thing. There's quite a pragmatic view as well, isn't there? That if you mm. can't take that kind of heat, you are probably, I'm going to mix too many metaphor, metaphors here, but you're probably in the wrong kitchen, as in, is this the so right true. career? Yeah, so true. You've got to be able to handle the pressure, 100%. Yeah. You've been performing, um, well, I'd say many years, I don't want to make you sound too old, but you have been performing <laughs> um, uh, since your early teens, haven't you? Performing live. Yeah, so I got my guitar at 13. That's when I sort of started writing songs and really got into country music. And then I had my first gig when I was 14, actually in Seven Oaks, uh, ironically. It was like my own little Bluebird Cafe. It was really sweet. Um, and then, yeah, since 14, I'm 21 now. So, yeah, about seven years I've been doing it for. Who were you listening to? Uh, well, what really got me into country was the early Taylor Swift stuff. Um, and then, obviously, she went to pop and betrayed me, and it felt very personal. <laughs> Um, so then I went off to like, I watched the program Nashville, really got inspired by that and a lot of country radio stations. Um, but I've always been a massive fan of, you know, older music. Like I love, I mean, I'm a huge Sheryl Crow fan. Yeah. I mean, she is just incredible. Um, I love Brian Adams, Bruce Springsteen, George Michael. There's a real mix of kind of inspirations for me. Note to self, don't take the Springsteen bait. Anyone that listens to this podcast regularly or knows me knows that as soon as Springsteen's mentioned, we go off a whole and a whole another track and we <laughs> never end up back where we need to be. But um, I mean, OK, briefly on Springsteen, you're, you're, you are talking there about artists who are brilliant live, aren't you? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I saw Brian Adams, actually, I played the Cornbury Festival last year yeah. and um, he was headlining and it was one of those moments in, in time, in life where you go, that was just, I'll never forget that, watching him on this massive stage and sounding and looking and acting exactly the same as he would have done however many years ago. He was absolutely brilliant. I, I've never seen anyone like like that live. It was great. Because we talk about stagecraft, don't we? And, and here you are in, in the early days of your career, 21 years old, as you say. But stagecraft is so important, that ability to connect, whether you're playing to um, five people, 500 people, 50,000 people, it's the same rules, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I've definitely found there's been such a range of audience um, types and also audience like um, sizes for me. I mean, after playing the O2, I mean, that's 20,000 people. That was quite a massive. The, the funny thing about that is it felt so cavernous because it was so like it was just dark. It was pitch black. And uh, I heard my friends from the side. I could hear them whooping and screaming um, from one particular area. Is there a fourth wall there? Like, like on stage, you actually can't see who you're playing to. No, I, I couldn't actually see anything. I, I literally, I looked out and was like, this is mad. But the, I could hear everything, which was really nice as well. I could, I could hear all the rustling, but I could hear 
every part of the singing and all, all the guitar playing. So you couldn't hide. There was absolutely just me and my guitar. There was nowhere to hide at all. Um, but the great thing about doing that show was that I'd literally just come off tour with Nell and I'd just done 12 dates. So I was, you know, I was so much fit. I was so ready for it that it just felt like another gig. And it was, there was no nerves. It was no kind of like, you know, you know, sort of um, intimidation of it. It was just like, let's do it. Let's get on there and let's just play an arena for the first time. So that is a thing, is it, that, that you know, you're, you're on a roll, you're match fit, as you describe it there. You, you, you've you been playing, you know, all your chords, you know, all your tracks, you, you know how to interact with the audience. Mm. That is actually a real thing to, to, to get to that level of, of, of readiness. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing like the rehearsal of playing live. When you're playing, like doing gigs night after night after night, you just, you hone that craft unbelievably well, where you feel like you can connect with any audience. You can really get them going, if even if they're really like stayed and they don't want to join in, or they don't feel like they're very smiley tonight. You know, you can really get them in the groove. And I think the the interesting thing is that you really do tighten up because there's so many mistakes that you'll make on each night, different mistakes, and then you'll just go, no, nope, I'm not going to do that again next. Not going to do that. Not going to do that. And then by the end, you're like, okay, this is going to be the best performance I've ever done, and you feel so comfortable, and you know the songs. There's no like, oh, what was that word? Because it's just in your brain. It's second nature. I love the fact that you're making it sound so positive and exciting, but it but it is also a thankless existence, isn't it? It's also quite an isolating existence, quite a lonely existence. Well, you say that, but at the same time, I mean. Playing the gigs, it's not because you feel as though, you know, everyone in the audience, we're all in it together. We're all feeling these feelings. We're all kind of relating to these songs together and in our, in our own ways. And obviously on tours and stuff, I get to work with some absolutely incredible musicians. Uh, so it's a really sociable, really great way of networking and seeing people and meeting people. But I suppose when you're not doing the gigs and you're sort of at home in the studio working on music, working on new material, recording, I think... There's, there's definitely quite, you know, it's quite lonely then, I suppose. But then you collaborate with other people, you know, you get in there, work with a producer. So I suppose there's ways and means of not making it so lonely. <laughs> Talk to podcasts, for example. Exactly. I know. Exactly right. Get it's you great. out of your bunker. Uh, you're as yet unsigned, <laughs> Isabella. Does, does yes. that actually matter these days in these days of, of streaming and Spotify and Apple Music? Well, I suppose, yes, my stance on the streaming side of things is, I suppose, quite different because I'm very old school. So I really, I love the idea of, you know, going to a gig watching a live performance and then buying a CD. Buying vinyl, yeah. You know, I love, oh yeah, vinyl, I love it. I absolutely think, and that's what supports the artists the most, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, buying the merch, buying the CDs and really, and buying the tickets to the concerts because the problem with streaming is that, you know, you're putting all this effort and time and money into creating these this music and then you're giving it away for free. And, you know, I think to myself, well, it'll be so nice like for like it was back in the day when people would, you know, they'd take an album home and they'd really treasure it and listen to it and then it would be like a constant like over and over again you would listen to those songs and you'd get to know them and you'd really appreciate them um and I think and that's why I loved the whole who situation I really loved how that turned out because it was so old school the way that he came to the gig and then offered me based yeah. off what he saw you know not off of how many streams I have or how many followers I have it's based off of that's it that's the live performance and that's what you're going to get in terms of being signed I think there's definitely you know, there's certain things that record labels can do for you that perhaps you can't do as an independent. But then there's also a freedom of being an independent that you don't get from being with a label. So I suppose in a way there's it's pros and cons and it all depends yeah. on what deal you get or how, you know, how effortlessly you can work independently, you know. 
So you're coming to the stables on the 11th of November, that's a Saturday, on stage two. So you've progressed from stage one, supporting Nell, which is a, a really mm -hmm. classic course for artists uh, at the stables. Uh, talking to you has shown me that you certainly can talk and you can tell a good story, which is a really, really good thing for an artist. Mm -hmm. Now we need to know if you can sing. I say if. We know you can, but you're kindly going to play us a live track. What are you going to do for us, Isabella? Uh, well, I've decided to play uh, my brand new single that is out now. Uh, it's called Broken. And I actually wrote this song with a very good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Chaz Jankel. Uh, he was a music writer for all of the Ian Dury and the Blockheads hits and um, Quincy Jones' I Know Corita. He's an amazing, a legendary musician. Um, and yes, yeah, so this is one of our favourite songs we've collaborated on. And so I thought I'd do a little acoustic version for you. Take it away. You were like some overnight sensation Always thought you were older than you were I never knew you spend your time just waiting Cause all you did was leave without a word I was working hard, minding my own business Living my life just the way I wanted It's funny how everything just changes In a crowded room I see Talked until the night faded out And I still can't remember what we talked about And all the lights that guide me home are broken I know that you've heard that line before And I
Well, if that doesn't entice you to go to the stables on the 11th of November to see Isabella, I don't know what will. Uh, Isabella, that was absolutely gorgeous. Um, as I say, stables.org for tickets uh, for that gig. 8.45, what can we expect? Uh, well, it's going to be a headline show of uh, full of my songs, full of stories. I'll do a few piano tracks, guitar. Um, and really, it's just going to be an evening of uh, you and me sitting down and uh, having a good time. It sounds wonderful. Listen, a big part of this podcast is to offer artists a chance to make us want to go and see them. And you've absolutely done that in uh, in bucket loads during this interview. Uh, more information about you can be found where? Uh, well, I've got a website, isabellamusic.co.uk. Um, I've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of that at Isabella Coolstock Music. Um, and yeah, so please feel free to give me a give me a shout, give me a message, and uh, and absolutely, and I'll see you soon. I feel we should say Coolstock is C O U L S T O C K. I wouldn't normally finish an interview by saying this, but do send my best to your dad. He sounds brilliant. <laughs> everyone loves my dad. Honestly, by the end of the tour, everyone was like, "Where's your dad? Where's your dad? I want to see the man himself that you know that caused this entire tour." You know, it's hilarious. Isabella, it's been great to have you on. Turn up the volume. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Nick. Coming up shortly, I'll be chatting to the wonderful Neil Brand. He's uh, bringing an evening of music and film all about Laurel and Hardy to the stables at the end of October. He knows everything there is to know about silent movies. He's a great listener, so do hang around for that. First, though, let's hear a little bit more about Stage 2 at the stables. I caught up with Alison Young a little bit earlier on. She is the head of programming at the stables. And she told me about the history of Stage 2. Stage 2 um, is the second smaller performance space at the stables and it opened in 2007 to sort of put it into a bit of historical context it was originally it's the old stable block so it's the very original part of the building and it was originally housed the bar and the main entrance and the box office when the new building was was the main auditorium was built in 2000 it then became a sort of almost like a kind of redundant space it uh was wood panelled, it was very old fashioned, it had a stairwell going right up the middle of it. Um, so it wasn't really a usable space. So a bid was put into the National Lottery to turn it into a, a performance space or a multi-purpose performance space. And that's that process started around about 2005. I started in 2007, just as it had been built and they'd taken the stairwell out, they'd put a stage in, they'd put toilets in, a new bar area. It was absolutely, you know, pristine beautiful space and I kind of sailed in starting work at, in 2007 able to sort of program it from the beginning. It is quite a bit smaller than the main auditorium so it's only 80 seats so it's much more intimate. It's um, yeah about a quarter of the size of the, of the main space um, and the idea behind it was to create a performance space that was suitable for artists maybe at the beginning of their careers. So emerging artists who hadn't yet built up an audience that would fill 400 seats. We also programme more established artists who are maybe launching something new, you know, a new, a new album, a new direction. They don't want necessarily to put it out into a, into a, into a major tour, but they're looking for a sort of playing ground, testing grounds to, um, to, to work on new material. We've had um, one of the ones that springs to mind, um, and actually, because they're they're local as well, they're local to the stables and and local to to three counties as so, um, uh, the Shires. They first came to uh, to stage two, I think, twenty sixteen, um, and played to eighty people. And then six months later, we brought them back into the main house uh, in a double bill with another um, country band, Ward Thomas. And they sold out the main house and then they came back again 
on their own. So we had them three times in one year, but they started out in in stage two. So it's been amazing to actually see that see that progression, see them playing these enormous arenas and playing across the world and having all that success in America. It's just um, and you know you sort of have to pinch yourself sometimes and think, well, we were there at the beginning. Back in the day, we've had people like Sarah Millican, uh, Jack Whitehall has has played Screaming Blue Murders. So again, you can kind of see between then and now the sort of career trajectory yeah. that they've actually had. And of course, you can get all the details you need about the artists who perform on stage two at the Stables at stables.org. Let's finish with this. And one of the great things about doing this podcast for the Stables is that we can go from chatting to Isabella or Ed and Gary from China Crisis to discussing a very different duo, Laurel and Hardy, no less. Neil Brand is probably too modest to say it, but he's pretty much the preeminent expert on silent movies with a, a clear and obvious soft spot for Stan and Ollie. He wrote a play, Stan, for BBC Four and frequently performs improvised music on his piano to accompany screenings of the great duo silent films. He's coming to the Stables at the end of October for an evening of stories and film, focusing in particular on the early days of Stan and Ollie's relationship. Neil joins me now from his studio. Uh, Neil, I, I don't know how best to start this. Safe to say that I don't easily get silent movies. I suspect I'm not alone in this. <laughs> no, you're not. That's the main reason I'm doing this and going out on the road to bigger venues to show people how it works because I think we all grew up with this assumption that A, silent movies weren't that great because they were so early, so they were like museum pieces, and B, the music was always terrible. And I remember that was kind of what I was brought up to believe. I think it's what everybody was brought up to believe. And in fact, when I started playing at the National Film Theatre back about 40 years ago, not only did I sort of bring to it that love of film music that I've always had, so I kind of brought what music that audiences now would expect to go with films. But I also discovered this treasure house, a fantastic film that existed from 1895 to about 1930, where you not only had great comedians at the top of their game, but you also had an art form which put all its stories across, whether they were drama or documentary or comedy or horror or whatever, with an emotional clout that was all about the fact that they were only visual and that they had just music behind them. And I learned very early on, it's a different kind of art form. It's not one you have to kind of make any allowances for. Yeah. You turn up to watch it just the same way you would a piece of theatre or a concert or a modern film today. It's just that this is all three happening at once. It's a theatrical experience because the audience are hooked on what they're watching on the screen and the music is giving them this magic carpet to ride on whilst they're watching it. I've got a confession to make, actually, because I spoke to my my 15-year-old film-obsessed son, uh, Archie, last night, and he, he put me to shame in his knowledge of, uh, of silent movies. He actually came up with a gorgeous phrase. Uh, we were talking about the, the comic silent movies, and he mm. said he loves watching the comic silent movies as they give, wait for it, a legacy of laughter 100 years after they were made. Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. And your son is absolutely spot on. They do. And 100-year-old comedy does not age. That's the extraordinary thing. You watch Stan and Ollie on screen performing the same things they've performed on screen all that time. And what works is actually the comedy is timeless. It's very basic. It's a lot of slapstick. But also it's two really fundamentally lovely characters. Characters that you want to get to know more about. Characters you're fascinated to see how they're going to react in any situation. And they are kind of the bottom of the food chain 
They're like as low in society as you could possibly get, even though they got jobs and they may have a particular thing that they're doing. You know, maybe they've been hired as waiters or they're building a house or they're, you know, trying to sell Christmas trees. At the end of the day, they find life unbelievably hard. Yeah. They can't even get through a door at the same time. <laughs> Whereas the rest of us who are finding life incredibly hard at the moment just lose it with laughter at these two. Not because we feel superior to them, but there's something really cathartic about a couple of people who just pick themselves up and get on with it. And quite often they win the day, but they win it entirely on their own terms. <laughs> and it's worth bearing in mind that what made Laurel and Hardy famous was the Depression and all those sound movies they made during the 1930s when people desperately needed a laugh. And somehow or other, Stan and Ollie were it. They absolutely caught that zeitgeist, what it was like trying to deal with a tough time when nobody had any money, right? So here we are again, <laughs> further down the line, nobody's got any money, we're all dealing with a tough situation. And Stan and Ollie seem to have the answer. When they turn up on screen already, there's laughter happening. Yeah. And then beyond that, what they're going to do next, how they're going to react. And I have had the most wonderful time taking these shows out and look forward to it enormously because it's been a kind of therapy for me. I first started doing these shows as tryouts during the lockdown. So as soon as places started to reopen after the lockdown, I had calls, you know, would you come and perform in our church? Because churches were places you could actually play on a Saturday night. Every audience was properly separated out. They had great audio visual mm -hmm. amazing the av that you got in churches and you saw people who'd not seen their friends for four months or five months sitting in an audience all laughing like mad at laurel and hardy from a hundred years ago and it really did feel like life goes on you know keep calm and carry on here they are they're back again and we can sit in an audience and we can lose it with laughter yeah it's one of the things that we don't get so often these days because we're all in front of TVs and things. Not that that's a bad thing. But that sense of live comedy, you'll get it from stand-ups, obviously. You'll get it from funny theatre or funny films. But there's something about a whole audience together watching the same thing and the woof of laughter yeah. that will come. As a musician, I try and ride those waves. So I let the music, in effect, react to the audience as much as it's reacting to what's on screen. We'll talk about the music in a moment, but it was interesting to hear you talk about the the therapy angle. This all seems very, very personal for you. I, I was um, reading you in, a, in another interview talking about how, you know, you went to silent movies um, as a child. It's got that nostalgic element for you. And then all the way through um, to the end of uh, Laurel and Hardy's story, that, that, there's, that there are overtones of your own life story around your father's death, for example. This seems like mm -hmm. a very personal piece of work for you. Yeah, it it, it is. It's been my job. It's been my day job for, as I say, nearly 40 years. But during that time, I've changed a good deal. And I've realized, and I think any creative person would do this as well, you have to be able to channel your own emotions in order to be able to play or write or come up with music that is authentic. In other words, rather than just sitting there trying to second guess what everybody in the audience would expect to hear with these films, <laughs> what I'm doing is I try to be a character in the film. I try to imagine what it's like if Stan and Ollie are at the top of a partially built building, 800 feet in the air, trying to work their way around the girders to a ladder. So, you know, and it's not, it's, it's funny, but it's, I don't play funny because my feeling while I'm watching that is, oh, yeah. it's thrill comedy. 
and everybody is the same. And the number of people I've I've said who said, have, have said I couldn't look, I, I had to look away with that sequence. It's from a film called Liberty. And if you play it that it's terrifying, it's so much more funny. If you were to play it as funny, that's not going to work because then you lose the jeopardy, you lose that extra element. What Ben Elton used to refer to as serious comedy. Yeah. You know, you lose that link to being to being a human being. And so, yes, it is very, very personal to me, not whether or not people like this stuff, but that I, as a musician, play music that feels right and feels right from second to second. Because, of course, it's, it's all improvised. I'm making yeah. it up. And so I have to be those people. I have to be the bridge between Stan and Ollie and my audience sitting there in 2023. Are you honestly telling us that, for example, when you come to the stables, that that yeah. will be the first time that you will have played that? Is it really improvised every time? It is. Wow. There'll be certain ideas in my head that have worked in the past that I know I can rely on. But I try to make it different every time because, quite simply, A, I can't remember what I played <laughs> last time. You know, it's a two-hour show. B, it's also a workout. And this is something I learned from Paul Merton when I was on the road with him as his piano player and we were doing Silent Clowns together. He said that, you know, it, he, yes, he was doing Have I Got News For You and Just A Minute and the Rest of It, but what really made the difference was on a Sunday night was going to the comedy store and doing improv. Yeah where he turns up with absolutely no material whatsoever. And by the end of the evening, he and this other bunch of geniuses have created you know, sketches that nobody knew they were going to see. Now, that's the same as what I do with music, is that I know what Stan and Oni are going to do. I can time things to perfection now. But each time, I kind of yeah, I didn't quite get that idea. What, what if I try this? What if I try that? And each time, I'm actually giving it a new impetus a new set of ideas and it just keeps it as fresh as anything and the show itself focuses on on how they came together uh, stan and ollie two two very different characters two very different sides of the atlantic ocean yeah i got the idea for doing the show after seeing the steve coogan john c Riley film stan and ollie which i enjoyed but uh it was because it was concentrating a lot on the end of their relationship or you know towards the end of their relationship what I was missing was that rather lovely warmth of two guys who can make each other laugh and spin off each other. In other words, I just thought, wow, how did that happen? How did they come together? Stan, born in Ulverston, and he's the son of a music hall owner and promoter. Ollie, who's the son of a single mum in Georgia who was going to be uh, an opera singer before he ended up in films. And the two of them are kind of quirky anyway. Stan is an absolute obsessive. He's a workaholic. He wants to know about every stunt that's going on. He's driven. He has five wives. He marries one woman twice during the course of his life. Ollie is this shy, very aware of his weight and not too proud of it, but incredibly dignified and incredibly light on his feet. Man who could not give a toss about the technical side of the films and just wants to finish his filming and get out on the golf course. Hmm. Now, how do those two come together? Not just in terms of their differing sort of personalities. Who is responsible for it? Somebody goes, yeah, they're going to work. So I thought, right, we'll go back to the beginning. We'll look at them in the silent period because obviously that's my period as well. So pre-sound. How we already know what they sound like because we all know their sound films. 
we can watch them developing that wonderful relationship. And we see a couple of films from when they were individual comics and what they were doing. And then we see them start to come together. And you can see that what it is that works between the two of them is that they've got to the stage that they've relaxed in each other's company. And they, they spin off absolutely naturally from each other. What one does, the other one reacts in a certain way. Ollie starts to deliver his, to, to develop his staring out of the screen at us making us complicit in whatever it is he's doing, whether he's fallen down a muddy hole or lying under a pile of bricks, whatever it is. We laugh because he looks at us and goes, can you believe what he's just done to me? <laughs> you see Stan and Ollie together making decisions that are you know, the, utterly the wrong ones and that will bring about utter catastrophe, but they do them together and they see them through to the end together. Yeah. And by the end of it, I show two of what I consider are the greatest comedy films ever made, silent or sound, short or feature, which are big business, where Stan and Ollie are trying to sell a Christmas tree to a man who really doesn't want one, <laughs> and Liberty, which is where they end up on this half-built building and comes complete with Harold Lloyd-style terror yeah. of being right up high and about to fall to their deaths. <laughs> Look, look, looking at their chemistry, am I right in saying that usually in these kind of uh, double acts, you'd have a straight man and a comic, but it strikes me that they were both capable of both and often from one second to the next. Yeah. And I think with the best comic double acts, Morkman Wise as well, the straight man isn't just a straight man. The comedians, they're both comedians. They could be either, either one straight man, either one's comic. And what makes their comedy work is they're different kinds of comics, the pair of them. Stan's comedy is very much from the idea of Stan really does not know what's going on, but he'll have a go at it. He'll make a, a fist of trying to understand a situation and try to make the difference. Ollie thinks he knows. Ollie mm. thinks he's gonna he can get through this. He Ollie will take the lead. You know, don't go down there. And he'll push Stan out the way. And of course he will then walk into whatever the crisis is to the client. And he doesn't know that he doesn't know. Stan knows he doesn't know. And yet the two of them together have this kind of rather childlike, and I, this is, I think, one is one of the things about them. They are like kids, but they're not in a kind of horrible, squidgy way like kids. They're like kids in terms of, you know, anything is possible. Whatever we decide we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and do it. So that's why they end up having to swap their trousers over and one of them's got a crab in his trousers. You know, well, that's why they decide to go for that particular tool when they're, you know, they're about to sort of... Stan will very happily saw through the plank he's standing on yeah. because he just does, and that's yeah. the way his life goes. And we don't know that it's going to end up as disaster no. because quite often in Stan's world, things actually work out rather better than you would expect. Mm. It's a wonderful sense of absurdity and particularly a kind of building absurdity between them. And that is what makes them work. It's not that they're two halves of the same comic. They are twice the comic because it's the two of them. And those, they each have their own comic abilities, which together make for an enormous kind of comedy smack in the face from out of that screen. Just a final thought. Uh, you mentioned that you, you almost become part of the, the film itself. And I wonder whether yeah. for you the challenge is to ensure there's no slippage between what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And therefore, you may get that slightly slapstick element where you must be well versed in how to bail yourself out if, if you take a wrong turn. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen so much with Stan and Ollie. 
because the beauty of them, I, and one of the things I think the piano has to do is it does have to match some of the obvious sounds that are on that screen. So when there's a real big thump, you know, the piano's got to do it. And there's lots of times when I turn the piano into a sound effects machine as well as a music machine. Uh, with Stan and Ollie, I'm unlikely to get lost because I know what I'm doing with them. And they are, you know, they're, 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 I've played these films a lot. and But I often have to play films I've not seen and just sit down and start playing, dramas particularly. And then you've just got to be really careful that if you think a particular character is heading towards blowing their brains out with a rifle, <laughs> that they are actually going to do that. But you can't play that until you know for sure that's what they're going to do. And I've spent many, many years, in fact, happy years, sitting in front of a film trying to predict where it's going to go next and play the music and sometimes get ahead of the film. <laughs> And sometimes afterwards, the audience come up and go, wow, you must have had to really rehearse with that. And you can just blow them away by saying, no, I hadn't actually seen it before I played it this time. But again, like with the Paul Merton dictum, if you play a film that you've not seen before, it is the most brilliant workout for your head because you have to be making decisions from second to second. And that's happening anyway with these films. With Stan and Ollie, I'm not trying to match the mu the, the the film from you know every every 15 seconds. I'm trying to match it continuously, because when it works at its best, Nick, I have to say, people say to me, "We forgot you were there." Yeah, and actually, that's fine. You can't forget I'm there during this show because I'm going to keep standing up and telling you things. <laughs> but you can forget I'm there when it comes to the music, because there will be times when it just feels like the film is producing the music and Stan and Ollie are dancing to it. Neil, I've got a random idea because you, you've got your piano there. Um, I'm coming towards the end of this podcast. I'm going to do, the, I'm going to do my, my bit where I tell everyone what to do and how to subscribe. Can you play Great. us out when I do that? Oh, yes. Yes, very I pleased. I like this idea. Let me, let, me, let, me, <laughs> let me first give details of this show, which I think is, is going to be unmissable. As I said at the start, Neil really is the, the preeminent expert in this. And, uh, and it's going to be a lovely watch, both to, to see the anecdotes from the early days of Laurel and Hardy, and then, of course, see those two great films that you mentioned there, Big Business and uh, Liberty. It's Tuesday, the 31st of October, which I think is half term, if I'm not mistaken, at eight o'clock at the Stables, stables.org uh, for ticket information. Uh, Neil, more information about what you do and where you do it can be found uh, how? at uh, www.neilbrand.com right so here we go this is neil brand uh, this is totally improvised to be clear <laughs> neil brand playing us out uh, on turn up the volume today listen thanks as always for taking the time to listen uh, to turn up the volume uh, if you do enjoy it and if you enjoy this series please tell your friends to seek it out uh, you can leave a review as well you can follow the series all of these things really help us to get the word out there and, uh, and they really help support the work of the stables as well i'll be back next month with some uh, brilliant artists stables.org for more information about all of the great events you can see at the stables as always, it's been a pleasure to put this episode together for you. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, but for now, from me, from Nick Coffer and the Stables, it's goodbye. <laughs>